You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. First broadcast on the 11th of April 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up today, the sun is out here in Zurich. London is reopening, but Germany is going into a new hard lockdown. And here in Switzerland... Police have broken up a demonstration against COVID-19 restrictions in the Swiss town of Altdorf. My guests today, Solène Nerger, Gillian Devias and Emily Isohau, they'll be here to examine how authorities strike a balance when patience is wearing rather thin. Then we'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and we'll also get the headlines from the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I've got a welcome travel dilemma. Should I head to Zagreb Airport for a low-cost flight bonanza or get on board the night train to split? We'll hear more from Guy a little bit later, plus what's on the pages of Israel's Haaretz newspaper. It's the 11th of April 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. Well, good morning from a very, very sunny Zurich. I'm very happy to say that I have, uh, I think, a fresh-faced uh, crew around the table this morning. Gillian uh, Dubias is here, uh, Solène Leger, also Emily Isohau. Uh, good morning, everybody. Very nice to see all of you. Good morning, Good morning. Tyler. Good morning. Like We're like at school. I, I know it's like very like it was very Sunday school of everyone. Uh, Gillian, we were just saying before we went on air that uh, we don't know when you're going to leave. Uh, what started as the the the, the one week trip, you've now been down to Geneva. You've been to to Kandersteg. You've experienced multiple seasons all in the span of two weeks as well. I know. I'm still here. I'm contemplating extending it lo- as long as I can, but uh, it's been such a treat. And one of the treats this week was my away day to Geneva. Because um, you said you hadn't been to Geneva since... I hadn't been since yeah. I was a child. And uh, I've been to Zurich so many times here for Monaco mostly, but many times. And what I loved about it, it gave me the same thrill as when you're in London and you get on the Eurostar and two and a half hours later you pop up and everyone speaks French and everything looks different. And here we are in this small country and I realize you just take a train view of the mountains and you have that same feeling of almost as if you're in a different country and it was just it was gorgeous to feel the the, the French atmosphere and see the light white buildings and the blue sides I thought oh this is a treat <laughs> uh, Emily uh, Geneva versus Zurich uh, have, have you sort of planted your roots here or or, or could you be tempted uh, to that other lake well, I guess if you work more in the field of peace and security, Geneva would make more uh, sense career-wise. But I, I, I love Zurich, and I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And today I'm ready to head to the lake to enjoy the sun and get some vitamin D. So you've you've already been in, in the lake. You've done your, your spring dip already? Yes, I've, I've shed my winter fur, as we say in Finnish. This say, was already say, say in it February. for us in Finnish. Heitin talvi turkini. Okay. <laughs> but yes, no, in February we had those two weeks of rather warm weather. So I, I went for a run and felt warm enough to go and dip into the water. But I have to say I ran quickly home afterwards. And also it was it was the official opening yesterday of, of the uh, the body here in Zurich, the body Utoke just around the corner from us. Uh, Solène, I mean, you sent me a picture first thing yesterday morning. Bonjour, by the way. Very nice to see bonjour, you. Bonjour, bonjour. Uh, and uh, so you, you went in, but you, 
full disclosure that this was this was there was a wetsuit involved, which yeah. is not really in that the spirit of shedding one's yeah. winter for. But that, anyway, that was what we call a, a short one. So oh. I was almost almost doing exactly as what you were doing. Uh, so yeah, no, but I did it though. It was, and was six and was degrees. It bu- and was it busy yesterday? Or that was actually yeah, a lot of people coming back to Buddy. Yeah, yeah, mm. but that was uh, I was the only non-professional one actually. Everyone was going uh, <laughs> only with a bathing suit. So I'm trying to do it today. Now I can almost hear the curling of toes over in London because this is Andrew's favorite topic. <laughs> and Andrew Tuck, um, we're missing you, but I'm hoping that you're going to be sending me some, something that resembles a flight schedule because the lake is waiting for you, Andrew. Well, let's just say that I've been over the years very wary of any time that Mr. Brulé says, do you fancy a quick dip? Because it nearly <laughs> always involves horribly cold water. And I see no point as a, as a, a, a very pale Englishman of jumping in cold water. That's the, that's the reason we go to the Med. We want warm water. We don't want this icy cold nonsense. So whether it's been in the Baltic or in a Swiss lake, you know, the, the Brulé desire for cold water has never, ever been explained to me in a rational way. You see, Andrew always knows, you know, even in springtime, if there's like a couple of Aperol spritzes involved, he knows that it's, it's going to be sort of then carting him down to the lake. We try to fortify you somehow, Andrew. But anyway. And also the, the terrible thing is I, over the years I've, I've learned whatever you do, don't pack the swimming trunks because then you're in trouble. But then, well, then he but has spare <laughs> pairs. Then he I has know, spare pairs. That, that's why there's a whole collection in the shop now. Uh, okay, but you, can I just tell you, I was in the Med last week, and I think the Med, and Andrew, you would sort of know, when you get to uh, close to Gibraltar, where you're, you're near the mouth of the North Atlantic, it's, it's not exactly toasty um, either. But Solène, you, you were in Portugal last, last week. Uh, did you brave the Atlantic as well? I did. I did. No, no, that was absolutely delicious. We, I was in uh, Alentejo on the coast, uh, deep nature, absolutely beautiful. So yeah, yeah. But uh, there was a. Uh it was more 14 degrees uh, instead of six degrees here, water speaking temperature. So that was not that brave, I guess. <laughs> uh, Andrew, uh, d- deep nature, uh, you, you, uh, you touched on it in your column uh, uh, yesterday. Maybe not so much deep nature, but certainly urban nature. You said this this moment of, of looking up uh, that you've never sort of heard so many people comment on on blossoms, almost sort of embracing this notion of a, of a London Sakura season, but also saying, wondering whether this is, uh, is going going to endure when this uh, when this moment passes us well certainly last uh, Easter week- weekend we had this surprise sunny day on the Sunday the parks were just full and you suddenly did get a glimpse a tiny glimpse of, of you know why in Japan the, the cherry blossom season is so important and so loved by people the parks were full of people, but there were proper queues of people waiting to get under a tree to have their picture taken with their family, with their friends. People were picnicking under under the under the cherry blossom, and it did it did look amazing. And then when I came in on on uh, after after the Easter break, the first thing Sophie Grove said to me was, "Did you see the blossom at the weekend?" And then a couple of other people said, "Oh my god, it was it was so incredible." So I think people have been very attuned to being outdoors in parks. They know the movement of every blackbird and duck at this point. But as you say, on my Monday, we begin the reopening. And after we've had a long, long lockdown in comparison to other European countries. So in London, a a pub or a restaurant has not been open since uh, early December. Suddenly they're going to be open. And you can can feel the the excitement because all week, I, I think places that would probably could have been got ready to open in probably about two hours. The teams were in on Tuesday. They were polishing, cleaning. And don't forget, many of these places still had their Christmas decorations up. So they were they were getting ready. And there was, an, there was a, a sense of proper excitement. And just some things this morning, I was just looking in the, in, in the media here this morning. 
many pubs because you have to book to get an outside place to eat. They, they regular pubs have nine week waiting lists to get a table. Uh, most uh, barbers in London, which also open on on Monday, have up to two to four week waiting lists for a place. So it's going to be. There, you can see why it's going to be slightly uh, a, a moment of relief come tu- come Monday and Tuesday. So, with all of this, uh, yeah, scrubbing and pruning and everything that's uh, that's happening, uh, have you taken your your couch or your water blaster? Is that, is that actually on on high rotation rent right now, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I can say it is, it is interesting how you know, w- wandering around yesterday outside, you know shops that have allowed their plants to die and things so there's like there's deliveries of plants there's deliveries of soil that people are just getting ready and if if this time because the, the progress to full opening up is going to take still some months if if it's not faltering if it goes forwards and it doesn't take a step back then i think that we could be in for a very interesting economic bounce uh in these economies once they begin to open up and here in the uk you, you sense it and again looking at some numbers this morning there's a report out that says uh, in in the past year nine and a half thousand chain store outlets have closed in town centers but actually only 1500 or so independent shops and they're saying that this could be a moment because rents are a bit lower uh there's lots of vacancies there's lots of space to take that if you are an entrepreneur this is definitely going to be your moment this summer to have a go have a punt at starting that retail outlet that shop that uh, that that bar Let's uh, look at the papers uh, and maybe we'll just, uh, of course, start with what is one of the the main stories, obviously, in the UK. Julie, I want to start with you. Yesterday afternoon, we were talking about uh, Prince Philip um, and we're talking about from a media point of view, the the coverage as well, that it has been, you said almost you were surprised, positively surprised. Of course, on one side, how positive it is uh, that that this is, it's been quite a universal message of of, of recognition and, and respect. And not too much, started a little bit this morning, but not too much in terms of going over the the Meghan and Harry story. Well, especially, you know, being away from London, I really, when when Prince Philip did die, I I had to just immerse myself in the coverage and how the British uh, press were covering it. And we all know Fleet Street, when it comes especially to royals, are the first to really find the negative and find the salacious. And there was such respect. And I think they were reading the room, actually. I think think they were realising that actually, you know, partly on the back of the un-Britishness of the Harry and Meghan Oprah interview, but they were always realizing that, you know, this was a, a man's life uh, well lived over a generation. It made you think of your parents and your grandparents. And it was kind of cathartic. And I think they they felt that the British public actually wanted to, you know, honor the British family for service. And also it, it became quite personal to their lives and their elderly and their loved ones. And it just it makes you think of your, your own mortality in a strange way, but I think it was very respectful. Emily, anything that uh, that you saw either in the, yeah, let's say the, the traditional sort of pan-regional global press or anything out of, out of the, the Finnish press that has sort of stood out, certainly with regard to, to, to Philip and, and maybe, and I'm not saying through a Swiss-Finnish lens, but but how this has been observed, of course, you know, two countries uh, that, of course, do not have, uh, do not have royals. Yeah, no, uh, I would agree. It's been overwhelmingly positive uh, reporting in, in, in Finnish media um, on, on his passing. And I would say the key reason is just the sheer length uh, of, of his uh, time, quote unquote, in, in, in office. And, and so many things have happened. And so, for instance, Helsing and Sanoma just had long articles uh, going through the history, of course, through a Finnish perspective, uh, recounting his visit to Finland, how he, for instance, uh, apparently by liking an area that was under 
development in, in the outskirts of Helsinki for the natural side of it. He made a comment about it and apparently it was protected thereafter. <laughs> um, so um, the Finnish press have tried to find these positive uh, stories uh, throughout the years as well. So then we were touching uh, before on, of course, uh, France's reflection on the the, yeah, the, the Meghan and Harry story, again, uh, of course, against the backdrop of, of the uh, the Oprah interview. But now through this, uh, of course, you know, again, of course, a very long history and, and a history really lived between the UK and, and France. Uh, what, have, what have you noticed in the French papers. No, I totally agree with uh, with what Gillian was saying. We respectfully uh, um, give a tribute to to I mean to him. It's basically it's exactly what you say. It's about your own grandparents and your own ones that you actually sharing up a little bit more uh, during those times. So it, we had the exact same comparison. Very respectful, and uh, I like the tribute and the covering of the French uh, newspaper about it. Uh, Andrew, just uh, do do you think uh, as well? We the, obviously there's a period of mourning up until uh, I believe uh, the the 22nd uh, of 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 this month um but will there be a turn of the press because already you did see that there was a this we have we, this 24 hour 36 hour period of of in a way sort of you know deep respect marking this moment and then of course already we move into the territory of course who is coming who's going to be showing up etc um and uh, do you do you think the papers will start to move a little bit from from tomorrow morning no i i, I think it, it, Everybody has said the right things. I think this has been told as a human story. You have to remember what the what the UK, what Britain, what England in particular has been through uh, over the last couple of years. You know, we've had coronavirus. We've, we have these intense cultural debates about what it means to be British. We've had Brexit. People feel a bit bashed. And actually, here was a moment where I think you know that huge silent majority who often don't feel that they get to say what they think have kind of made their voices heard and said, you know what, actually, there is something about being British that I'm quite proud of. And actually, I'm quite happy to be English. And there's a there's a rallying sense. You've seen this in the past when we've had jubilees and royal celebrations, you think that people won't get behind them. And suddenly, it captures something still latent in, in us as, as British people. And I think the, the Harry and Meghan thing is 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 another thing that has upset people in the background you know they, they haven't known how to express it in the newspapers but suddenly this allows them to say okay it, this is a moment of support for the top hierarchy in, in the royal family for the queen in particular and i think the other thing is you, you sense that you know yes it's it, it's uh, the duke of edinburgh who, who has passed this week but it makes you realize that you know, we are, we probably only have a few years left at most of the Queen uh, running this country. And then people know that once she's gone, then the culture of this country is going to change for good or bad in lots of different ways. And I'm not sure people are ready for it at the moment. So again, that people a little bit nervous. And the last tiny thing, just on the Harry and Meghan thing, I did see somebody tweet a very, <laughs> which I thought was quite an amusing tweet. They said uh, that they hoped that... Uh, the Queen and the the royal family were were giving Meghan all the support that she would need at this very difficult time. <laughs> 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 so I want, Gillian, uh, uh, we picked up on a topic yesterday. I just want to canvas everyone's opinion around the table. That this Andrew, this is going to be a ceremony for only only thirty people to, of course, uh, yes, abide by. You know what are, what are the rules? I'm I'm wondering if if this is. Again, a case of uh, maybe just people being a little bit, you know, playing to the crowd a little bit too much. That you know, here is again an extraordinary life. We know that, of course, these offices have to, of course, lead by example. But this is a, an extraordinary 
moment. And we've also seen as well, you know, you mentioned, you know, obviously the government being through a hard time. The PM goes for, you know, a, a bike ride, you know, Boris Johnson. You may or may not like him, but we remember some months ago that he, you know, he ventured out into uh, East London and uh, and then he was sort of jumped on by, by the press. Do we all think, is is there room, is there a role for heads of state, uh, for ministers to, of course, yeah, let's say step out of bounds if their interests are, of course, whether they want to survey uh, what, what is happening in East London. We had uh, the foreign minister in Switzerland this week, you know, did a tour of the Middle East. You know, some people saying, well, again, you know, this, this sort of sets a bad example. People shouldn't really be on planes. They shouldn't be out there in the world. But, you know, again, when you're looking at these, these, these public offices, you know, where people are supposed to be taking a position of leadership, you know, should we be able to be stepping out of bounds? And Jillian, I'm wondering what, you know, start with you. What, what is your thought on this? You know, do, do you think that the palace should be saying, actually, you know, if, if 100 people need to show up to mark this, then, then so be it. Um, we, we understand what the rules are, but this is, you know, we're talking about, of course, uh, someone who's been with us for almost a century mm-hmm. and also, uh, you know, is, is, you know, is, 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 you know, side by side with, of course, uh, the, the head of state. I do. I, I think all things are not equal. And I think these are extenuating circumstances. And I think when it comes to this respect, I, I'm sure they can do it safely with 100 people and that everything should not be um, lowered to the lowest common denominator. I think there are times when it makes sense to just say, OK, let's have exceptions. Let's do it well. But this is an honor and, and you know, it'd be sad not to really kind of respect that. Um, so then, your view, are, can, you, can we have exceptional moments uh, right now, or do we all have to do what everybody else is doing? Definitely, I think we can have exceptional exception, and it definitely won, and we can make it safely for sure. So, no, no, I totally agree. And I just want to say something that we actually said on the French news. They were saying that, you know, so he was sick for the past year, but he was actually the one that was keeping up the family together. And the French newspaper was saying, maybe if we'll not have been that sick the last year, Meghan and Harry will not have left. So we putting a, we were putting a lot of a, yeah a lot of things in him. So no no actually this is what they say. This is what Le Monde said. Mm. <laughs> Emily, this uh, well we had Monsieur, uh, Mr. Cassis of course was uh, was flying around the Middle East this mm. week. Quite a high profile trip, high profile trip to Lebanon, mm. uh, which was which was again you know really extraordinary to watch this moment of, of, of him being in the crater. And again, you, you've also then heard voices saying, well, you know, this is, you know, of course, people can travel out of this country, mm-hmm. but at the same time, is this the right moment to, to be doing it? Uh, should we be calling leadership into question? And, and again, um, can there be exceptions to, to, to rules? Yeah. And it's an interesting debate also when it comes to vaccinations. One debate, for instance, that we've had in Finland is whether politicians or even the president should be able to skip the line um, to get uh, his job um, and and the policy is not and it's an equality argument that's being made that the president um, no matter his position he has to wait in line just as all other Finns have to and I think that's the Finnish mentality of egalitarianism uh, but then there are those who argue that of course if you're representing the country running the country you need to do your business and you need to be able to travel and meet other heads of state um, and I think that's perhaps increasing in importance in, in the debate but just on the uh, funeral preparations what I um, been reading is that it was uh, mostly at his request to have a relatively small um, gathering and I, I suspect an exception in terms of some mm. of the rules would have been made had it been the Queen's funeral and, and, and that mm. surely uh, would be the case I think. Andrew over to you. 
Yeah, I agree. I think he's he he would have been quite delighted that quite a lot of the the people who he regarded as buffoons <laughs> will not be allowed to kind of be turning up on the day, and that he'll be his his nearest and dearest uh, with him as he departs. And yeah, and he knew his his role. He knew that he, it was this walking two steps behind, being the supporter, and he won't mind if there is a delay. I think for any kind of celebration. And you know, on on this again, we had the Norwegian PM this week being fine for having a bit of a knees up with 13 people rather than 10. You know, in the end, it's very difficult not to lead by example. So I, I, in, I think the royal family behind closed doors, hopefully they'll be seeing a few more people to say farewell to. But yeah, I think, I think they're playing it right. Mm. Uh, just uh, Andrew, looking ahead uh, to this week, and just and just going back to to your point about, uh, I just want to pick up this, on this retail point because I, I was just looking at the, at, at the papers um, in in between. Um, what what are we hearing right now in terms of a, a new wave of, of stimulus, uh, and whether we're seeing something which is happening on on a council level um, in the UK, whether it's happening, uh, I guess, you know, more at more at a national level in terms of what's going to be done for the the retail landscape we've we've heard a lot of things about various improvements i know that uh, there's uh, at the end of oxford street they're going to to be erecting this um yeah kind of amazing uh, man-made sort of mountain structure um of course this is one thing which is happening uh, so h- how do you how do you sort of see this this unfolding how much of it is really going to be just be grassroots uh, yeah small businesses and and even streets and and communities pulling together versus something where there's going to be more of a central hand guiding it and, and maybe also financing it as well well i think from central government has come this 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 call to all councils to uh, uh, to ease planning restrictions, to allow temporary things to be built, to put up, to, to get people outdoors and out onto the streets. So certainly just yesterday, you, you saw barriers going up, plastic barriers, which, meet, which aren't very pretty, but they allow the restaurants to tumble out onto the street and take over space that happened last summer. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of that allowing effectively you to increase the the square meterage of your operating space quite rapidly uh, over overnight tomorrow. Then I think on the council level, they're, they're, they 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 recognise that in, in certainly in prime areas they need to spend big. They're spending a, a couple of hundred million pounds just just trying to revive Oxford Street and this um, this this. This man-made hill that's going to appear at Marble Arch by um, the architects uh, MVRDV. I, I think it's going to be a fun thing for the summer. Whether that's going to solve all the problems of Oxford Street, which seem to be more to do with the tenants in a way, I, I, I don't know. But the, on, then on the private sector side, you're seeing structural change as well. So you're seeing big stores like the the, the, the Marks and Spencers on on um, Oxford Street, which has been there since the 1930s, saying, "Look, we will only ever reopen the ground floor." We, we're, we're never going to open the other floors. We're going to rent them out. They're going to be co-working. We're going to hive those things off. So there's on that big corporate side, there is there's rapid restructuring as well. So it's going to be interesting. You, know, you and me, Tyler, are always positive in these moments. It could come out pretty well. You could get rid of a lot of terrible stores. You could lower rents. You could see opportunities for, for younger players. But the trouble is that often when these, these big councils, even like Westminster Council in London, get involved, you wonder how if you spend all those tens of millions, what it's really going to go on. And there's a limit to how many kind of stages for jugglers and kind of potted plants that then die <laughs> are going to really turn things around. 
just uh, Andrew, just stay with us for one moment. Uh, so then you, you, as I was saying at the top of the show, you were just in in Portugal. It's been interesting to watch. Portugal was was sort of one of the one of the the bad children in terms of, of cases, etc. We look at the top of the year. They're now really almost at the bottom of the league table when you look at seven day incidences, uh, overall infection rates. Uh, what was the mood like um, in in Portugal when you were there? Yeah, no. So, so everything is reopening. Your restaurant, all uh, uh, cultural place. So it's almost uh, life back to normal. Uh, people are very excited. Of course, uh, it was a very hard lockdown. Even during the weekend, people have to stay home. So you can feel that uh, it's spring again. So it's uh, nature is blossoming, and uh, people in Lisbon were so exciting. So terrace were full, and uh, same as in London, you have a long list to make sure you have the good table at the restaurant you like. But uh, that was really really nice so uh, but people are still very very careful uh, they're respecting all the rules and it's of course it's a uh, 50% capacity for example uh, in a restaurant and only outside so but just very very joyful uh, and we'll come back to you at the end of the show but uh, just before we go to the news over in London uh, where where have you booked so far where, 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 <laughs> I, I, I think everyone's probably listening going where, where, where's Andrew going good question <laughs> Well, oddly, my first booking is at uh, 7.30 tomorrow morning, which is a swim lane, which is because swimming <laughs> opens tomorrow. So the gym, the gym reopens tomorrow and the swim, swimming opens tomorrow. So I, I, I've, they've promised me that the water is very, very warm because be, I had to check that before I booked. But yeah, I have a, I have a, a kind of like nice uh, start of the day swim. And then we've booked, uh, f- we're, we're, we've booked kind of one restaurant for outdoors as well. But um, it's it's... Yeah, it's for me the biggest excitement is just getting out on the street and seeing that activity come back. You you've you've felt it already in the last few days, people out and about, as I said. But when that happens on Monday, I think it just it, it just gives everyone a kind of bit of hope and a, a jolt back to the future. And we should probably say to our listeners uh, who are in the UK or anyone who's venturing over to the UK, if they can, uh, over the course of the week, um, Andrew, that uh, it's going to be cocktail um, hour pretty much from the, the end of the week uh, all the way through to next weekend as well, that uh, we're, we're inviting everyone uh, to, to Children's Street uh, to visit, uh, of course, the cafe, of course, to go around to George Street uh, to, to go to Trunk um, as well. You'll be there with the jugglers, though, won't you? I'll be there with the jugs and the jugglers. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, I could make a dreadful segue, but I'm not going to. Uh, Emma Nelson is here with the news headlines. <laughs> I appreciate that enormously. Thank you, Tyler. Here are the news headlines. A further 80 people have been killed in another day of violence in Myanmar as military forces fired rifle grenades at protesters in a town near to Yangon. An investigation has begun into the murder of one of Greece's most respected crime journalists. Georgios Karavas was shot dead outside his home in Athens by two men on a moped. And more than 100 diners have been fined by police for attending an underground restaurant in Paris. Officers were called out for an excessive noise complaint about a restaurant and put an end to a gathering of more than 110 people. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, you haven't been shining the flashlight or having the the, the spray can (laughs) out with with any any parties uh, going on in uh, in the square across from you, have you? None at all. I mean, just thinking in the context of the world getting getting back to normal, um, I was beyond excited to get on a bus and put on some makeup this week. So that <laughs> that just gives you an idea of, of the level of excitement that the British are experiencing. I know I have a couple of things booked in my diaries for dinners and lunches, but that's way down there. We're, we're, we're sort of going, I mean, I think Andrew's, Andrew's warm water swimming is, is about as exciting as I've, as I've heard. 
<laughs> uh, and, and so, again, Emma, thinking about first restaurant, first pub uh, that you can uh, dine out at, where, where, where are you going? I, well, there is a, there's a small cafe by the water in Hammersmith that I have a, an, a reservation for for oh, my birthday. I think I know that. I think I know yeah. that cafe. <laughs> that was actually the reopening of booking dates was put in my diary. And there might be a schnitzel eaten somewhere in a can restaurant. I in too, Aunt, Aunt, Emma, did, can I come too, Can I come too? I didn't want to tell you this, <laughs> but I've, back. I've actually booked for you, Jillian. And I'm sorry, I've already done it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Emma, we'll catch up with you at the uh, end of the show. Uh, it's uh, just gone uh, 10.31 uh, here in Zurich. It's 17.31, uh, uh, 32 now uh, in Tokyo. But time to uh, head somewhere in between the two, off to Tel Aviv right now, uh, to speak to Aleph Ben. He is the editor-in-chief at Haaretz uh, Newspaper. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so I guess I would like to start off just, uh, it's been fascinating, of course, watching the, the, the Israel story throughout. On one side, uh, of course, uh, the very strict measures, of course, that were imposed by government. And then just watching uh, this, this breathtaking uh, vaccination uh, rate at the moment. Maybe bring us up to speed. Where do, where do things sit um, at, at the moment? Uh, of course, you're, you're at top of the league tables, it seems, globally, uh, certainly for a nation of your scale when it comes to, to vaccinations. Um, did, is there the sense that you're out of the woods yet, though? You know that uh, whenever I explain the Israeli culture to people from outside of Israel, I tell them that the first thing you should know about us is that we hate standing in lines. And uh, <laughs> that all Israelis, whenever they had to stand in line waiting for anything, would find ways to cut corners, to go around, to come up with excuses and and, and uh, go, go straight to the to be the first to get service. And I think this is what happened with, uh, with the vaccines. Uh, the majority of the, of the population over 16 in Israel is already vaccinated by two shots. And uh, the restrictions are falling apart. Uh, next week, for the first time, they're going to raise the, to lift, to lift the uh, face masks outside, outdoors. Uh, all stores are open. Um, bars, clubs, parties, uh, you know, it's summertime in Tel Aviv, so everybody is out and, uh, and having a good time. There are still very few people who travel abroad because very few countries accept the, the Israeli uh, green passport, the Israeli, the Israeli certificate of vaccination to get you free travel and, uh, and uh, to save you from um, from lockdowns and isolation, and uh, most European Union countries still don't accept Israeli travelers with the foreign Israeli passports. So this is going to take a while. But uh, as far as life inside of Israel is concerned, it's mostly normal, with the exception of some some school classes that are still learning part-time, studying part-time uh, in Zoom rather than coming to the schools. Alex, tell us that we were talking a little bit about uh, tourism around the Med. Uh, is, is there any sense from the government as to how they're going to approach reopening uh, the, the country? And, and will there be a tourism season uh, Yeah, come, come July, August, do you think? Well, I think, I think they made a deal with Greece to uh, mutual recognition of, uh, of vaccinations. And I know that uh, Dubai is open to Israelis. I don't know how many tourists from Dubai and Abu Dhabi are going to come to Israel, but uh, this is open and Seychelles is open, although not many people from there will come. As long as as long as there are travel restrictions and people uh, 
without certificate of vaccination have to, to spend 10 days at least in, in quarantine when they come to Israel, I don't see much chances for tourism. So uh, I, think, I think it all has to do with the, with the progress of vaccination in other countries. Uh, only the United Kingdom is the only one. The only one relevant is the United Kingdom because all the rest, in the West at least, are far behind. Yeah, in, indeed. I want to look at one of the, the lead stories, uh, which is, uh, uh, yeah, of course, appearing in your pages, which is about this uh, leak um, uh, around the IDF, the, the Israeli Defense Forces. There was, of course, a special operation, but it, this somehow leaked to a foreign uh, news organization. H- how's this story playing out? Uh, there was a lot of um, discussion about it uh, when, when we, we first broke it. Broke it uh, our, our correspondent, uh, Yaniv Kubovic, broke it on Friday morning. And since then, there was a considerable follow-up because this is really, you know, in Israel, there is a censorship over military and intelligence affairs. and, uh, and uh, But there has been a long, long-standing practice of leaking stuff to foreign media, and then quoting it back in Israel, because that's a way to bypass censorship and to pass messages to all kinds of people and governments outside of Israel. But this was the first time that I can recall that military operation and a high risk operation at that uh, was was that the foreign media was briefed before the operation took place, which means that uh, the operation was meant for uh, mostly for diplomatic purposes or PR. And, you know, you can guess that with uh, the, the reopening of negotiations between the United States and Iran on, uh, on uh, a renewed or some way of, of uh, going back to the nuclear deal of 2015, which Trump left in 2018, the prodding of, the, of Prime Minister Netanyahu, then you'd see more activity on the Israel-Iran front. Uh, and uh, we have the American Defense Secretary, the first high-level visitor of the Biden administration in Israel, visiting us today. We have uh, news of uh, some ele- some mysterious electric failure at the Natanz uranium enrichment facility in Iran shortly after they announced that they are going to double their efforts to enrich uranium, breaching uh, the agreement. Uh, we see Prime Minister Netanyahu threatening the West and the United States not to abide by any deal that they might make with Iran and so on and so forth. So this is definitely an area to watch in the Middle East in the, in the coming days and weeks. I mean, it sounds like episode the second season of Tehran, uh, the way the way you talk about yeah. uh, the way you talk about this. Uh, but just to, just to g- going back to what, what was the nature of this uh, of this operation? Uh, do, do we know exactly what was supposed to happen? Well, I'm not, I'm not at liberty to disclose. But uh, you know you can you can um, search your, your uh, archive to find out what operations were carried out and publicized in recent weeks and days. And I don't think you're going to have uh, much trouble finding that. Yeah, we we don't want you to get uh, thrown into a black van uh, when you walk out of the uh, uh, out of, out of your front gate either. Uh, just uh, just tell me maybe in staying with um, yeah in the political sphere, so a story about uh, your education's minister and this refusal uh, uh, regarding uh, an award, uh, yeah, and 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 an award to a, a, a somewhat left leaning or rather left leaning politician. Well, not politician. We we have uh, the Israel Award is the annual. Uh, so the highest uh, civilian uh, award or, or prize or, or um, 
honor that Israel is giving to its citizens. And uh, it's in all fields of human achievement, you know, literature and sciences and uh, lifetime achievement, which occasionally goes to politicians. But it's mostly for uh, different researchers in different fields of study. And this year, and, and, the, and the jury is, is, uh, is a secret jury composed of rele relevant uh, experts in, in the relevant fields. And this year, the, the jury decided to give the prize for mathematics and, and computer science to a scientist called Odette Goldreich from the Weizmann Institute, uh, someone who was not a celebrity outside the, the small field of mathematicians. And I believe that uh, the vast majority of people could never understand any part of his research. But the Minister of, Minister of Education, ex-General Yoav Gallant of Likud, one of uh, Netanyahu's closest supporters in, in the government, uh, asked the, the jury to reconsider the prize in order, because not because of any any um, doubts he had about uh, Goldreich's scientific discoveries, but because Goldreich uh, is a left-wing uh, activist and he signed uh, several petitions against Israeli policy vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians and against the occupation and settlements. And that was enough for the right-wing education minister to doubt uh, and, and try to block giving the Israel prize for, um, to, to that scientist. The, the jury appealed to the Supreme Court and the court allowed Minister Gallant to re-examine the prize uh, in light of the uh, legislation in Israel that forbids Israelis to take part in boycotting Israel or the settlements. And uh, so this is now hanging in the air. The Weizmann Institute, uh, the committee of the heads of uh, research universities in Israel, all supported Professor Goldreich against the minister, with the exception of Bar Ilan University, which is, uh, which is a right-wing uh, university, more conservative religious university. And uh, we also published uh, an ad with the signatures of hundreds of researchers from Weizmann Institute uh, calling to separate uh, the freedom of expression of political uh, um, positions and from, uh, from uh, awarding Professor Goldreich for his uh, scientific achievement. And in an interview with our correspondent Orkashti, Goldreich said that this is a political witch hunt and that on one hand and on the other hand is not denied being part of the BDS of the boycott Israel movement because he said if I were if I were to boycott Israel I would never agree, have agreed to accept a prize from the Israeli government even if I disagree with its policies so this is uh, but but by the way every year in recent years every year the Israel prize is a matter rather than being a, a matter of you know re unifying the country around the achievements of individuals it's a uh, it's a battleground and uh, the courts uh, almost uh, inevitably have to intervene because people appeal against this or that candidate uh, uh, because of their uh, statements or whatever they did in the past so it's another another point of contention in, in the state of Israel, political battleground. And finally, Alifa, just before we, we go, which of course brings us, uh, you have Independence Day coming up uh, on, on Wednesday um, in, in Israel. Uh, give us uh, just a quick uh, temperature take on, on the country, uh, st you know, standing back and, and looking at uh, uh, Israel uh, as we move into Q2 of, of, of 2021. Uh, what's, uh, what's the editor-in-chief's assessment? 
Well, it's still in the midst of we're still in the midst of uh, um, very difficult, unprecedented political crisis. Uh, we're still in the hands of caretaker governments, and uh, so far there is no breakthrough in Netanyahu's efforts to put together a working coalition. So we might go to this and in the, after celebrating the 73rd Independence Day, uh, we might go to another election. Uh, later this year, in the late summer or early autumn. But even this fifth election in, in less than two and a half years, or in three years, would not resolve the political crisis <clears throat> and the debate between the pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu camps in, in Israeli politics and in Israeli public opinion. This is still, this is still uh, the wound, the rift that tears Israeli society apart in the wake of both Netanyahu's achievement in, in uh, promoting the vaccination effort and getting these vaccines from Pfizer ahead of every other state. On one hand and on the other hand, the same Netanyahu standing trial for corruption at the Jerusalem district court, and the trial is going on despite his efforts to delegitimize the investigation and then the indictment, and despite his efforts to find some political formula for immunity, Netanyahu is standing trial. He went to the court to hear the prosecutor's uh, um, opening arguments last week. The, you know, the, the, uh, the, the witnesses, the first witness is giving the testimony against him. And uh, this is also going to be part of, uh, of the Israeli news cycle in, in the coming year, pretty much. Aleph Ben, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Haaretz, uh, joining us there. Thank you very much. Uh, just 10.45 here in Zurich. We're going away for a very short break, heading to the Balkans after this. Have you heard the late edition on Monocle 24? Now more than ever, the time is right for a global conversation that cuts through the white noise and brings clarity, genuine insight and just the right tone to news and analysis. These were ways of getting on the same level as other people, stripping away some of the artifice of your office. So whether it's beer and chips or getting butt naked, you do need some of these moments that shake up the narrative. If you're tired of strident anchors and the wearying pace of the news ticker, then join Monocle's editors every weekday for the late edition. A lively, friendly and forward-looking kick-around of the day's main stories. I think if it gets people to engage with their beetroots in a different way, nothing remiss, then it's probably a good thing, isn't it? Hosted each evening by our editors from Zurich, London, Toronto and New York City, the late edition weekdays at 1600 Eastern Time on Monocle 24. And you are back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay, also Celine Leger is here, Emily Isahau and Gillian Dubias. But we are heading over to Ljubljana this morning to speak to our guy, Delaney. Good morning, guy. Morning, Tyler. Morning, all. Uh, tell us, uh, you, you, we heard you, of course, the opening of the program. Uh, there's a bit of, a, of an aviation shakeup, uh, probably coming at, at, at a good time. Uh, I, I believe we're talking about Croatia, of course, a country which... Uh, uh, where tourism is rather important to it, uh, as, as we know. Uh, but what's uh, what's happening at Zagreb Airport? 
Well, indeed, tourism is about a fifth of uh, Croatia's GDP by proportion. Uh, but Zagreb Airport, it's a funny one. They rebuilt it a couple of years ago. They renamed it rather controversially Franjo Tudjman Airport. And people may remember uh, Franjo Tudjman was the nationalist leader of Croatia in the 1990s, the sort of independence president who would have been on trial for war crimes had he lived into the 21st century, but he didn't. Uh, but the airport was, was, was rather nice and shiny and new. And the odd thing about it was it seemed very, very, very empty indeed. There were very few uh, flights going to and from Zagreb. And the main reason for that was the, the high prices which Zagreb Airport was charging for uh, airlines to, to land at Zagreb, the high passenger service charge. And it seems they finally cracked and they've dropped these charges by a whopping 80%. That's 80%. Uh, and as a result, we've got Ryanair confirmed coming in, Wizz Air in negotiations and Croatia Airlines, one would suspect, being very nervous indeed. Yeah, I mean, certainly as as, as a legacy carrier uh, and and one which has uh, been struggling for for some time, I imagine that they're probably not too thrilled. But then, as we know, sort of some uh, sometimes, uh, of course, a little bit of competition is is a good thing. What maybe just tell our panelists this morning three reasons why we would want to go to Zagreb this summer. <laughs> well, Zagreb's always a beautiful city to go to. Actually, normally I'd say you'd uh, you'd go because of this, uh, the in music festival would be a good thing to go to, an actual in the city music festival. But you know the gastronomy of Zagreb's pretty good. You could find yourself in a decent restaurant in many places. They are trying to open up as quickly as possible because, as we've mentioned, the uh, the tourism factor is huge in Croatia. So reopening in Zagreb is terribly, terribly important. And of course, you can take advantage of all the uh, the, the fine wines and olive oils from the Istrian region which make their way to Zagreb uh, first call uh, that would be an excellent thing to do but it's a very attractive town and I think it's in some ways Zagreb itself is under touristed because tourists tend to head for the coast the Adriatic coast Istria Dubrovnik split and they rather forget that Zagreb itself is is a very um, attractive and historic city uh, with a lot to offer in, in its terms of it's a very beautiful old town, an amazingly eclectic mix of museums as well uh, in Zagreb, perhaps one of the world's uh, oddest choices of museums uh, and uh, and lots more besides. <laughs> odd, I mean, odd why? Oh, you know, you've got things like the Museum of Broken Relationships. That's started off. Emily, that's a topic for Emily. I mean, he's, that's you know, right. I'd love to visit. He's, a, he's in conflict resolution. Perfect. <laughs> Give us another one. <laughs> oh, I've got I've got to get drama down my list now. Actually, there's some really weird ones. I, I keep a, I keep a folder of them. Actually, specifically, <laughs> Croatia museums. So if you give me a moment, okay. uh, well, while, no, while we're talking about other things, I'll, yeah, I'll let, pull let's that go, up. Let, let's go to because uh, you, uh, you do have your uh, your travel editor's hat on as well. Uh, I do. You know, I if do. We're not, if we're not going to be flying, you're, you're also talking about uh, the night train down to to split. Uh, if people do want to go to the coast and maybe uh, yeah, give Zagreb the miss. Yeah, I was fancying this until I saw how long the night train to split would actually take. So this is the uh, this is the Czech uh, Republic tourists who are particularly keen on making it to the Adriatic. In fact, according to all the blurb that I get out of Croatia, the Czechs refer to Croatia's Adriatic coast as our coast. And, you know, they had there by their hundreds of thousands. They're one of the, the most important markets for Croatia. And last summer, the wheeze that they came up with to avoid the coronavirus restrictions was having a direct train from Prague to Rijeka on the Croatian coast. And it was massively popular, uh, virtually sold out uh, 60,000 uh, tourists over the course of the summer. This time, they're, they're looking for about 100,000. But they're going a lot further. They're going all the way down to Split, which is anybody who's ever done the journey by 
road would know is a, is a very sort of wearing journey to make if you're doing it in a car. It's, it's a long way down the Adriatic, relatively speaking. And, yep, night train, that sounds great, doesn't it? So go to bed in, in Prague, wake up and split. Not quite. You're on that train for 21 hours. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so back to the car, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 um, it, it's, it, it's, it's a bit of a taxing one. Although, from a, from a coronavirus point of view, they've again got it quite well sussed. They're saying you can block out individual compartments for a, for a family group, for example. <laughs> so you would have a sort of you know, not quite hermetically sealed environment, but you would be very much in control of your environment. It wouldn't be like you'd be in an open carriage. Mm. And, um, you know, there's some of the some of the scenery would be beautiful, of course. Guy, just quickly, we've, we've touched on uh, the, the positive notes, and I'm, just, I'm going a little bit off script for a moment, but we've touched on mm. uh, how Serbia has managed uh, much of the pandemic very well, of course, uh, you know, uh, arms wide open to, to whatever vaccines are on offer. But we've also seen uh, Serbia's case numbers really, you know, go up. They, they, were, they were doing very well. And of course, you know, suddenly we, we see this rise. And, and as you and I were talking, they were very open for, for a while. You know, Belgrade yeah. was, you know, up and buzzing. What's, what's happening there now? Um, they were closed for a while. They, they did they did a lockdown for a couple of weeks, and but now they're reopening again. And it's, it's, they do seem to be playing this game of, of of closing down when they need to and reopening. The the, the the very strict lockdown, which they had last March, didn't go down at all well in Serbia. And the government is is ever uh, aware of the sort of the the winds of popular opinion. And they they just re- recognised that Serbian people weren't prepared to go into that sort of full-on lockdown, even though it actually restricted the number of infections quite well. What's played very well for Serbia, of course, is, is their, their vaccination programme, as you mentioned. And even when that looked to be slowing down a bit, and there was talk about the anti-vax movement having put the brakes on the number of vaccinations, they actually broke their daily record for the number of vac- vaccinations in one day uh, towards the end of last week. They managed to vaccinate, I think it was 75,000 people in one day in Serbia. And in Croatia, they were saying, oh dear, we've only managed a quarter of that in one day. So they, they, they're they really seeing vaccination as their way out of uh, pandemic restrictions. Very good uh, to end on a positive note like that. Our Guy Delaney um, in Ljubljana, our Balkans correspondent, thank you very much for that. Um, Emily, I can see across the way here you are, are looking um, at, at, at the papers. Um, and anything else out of out of Finland we need to know about uh, to make our <laughs> listeners Sunday? What's the Helsing in Sonomat or Kaupaletti or anyone else? Sure, I mean, maybe there? just to end on a couple of positive notes. So um, uh, Ule, the broadcasting company, reports that um, savings rates in Finland have reached um, their... Um, highest since the early 90s so close to six percent which has led to Finns having um, close to 95 billion euros in their checking account so leaving savings accounts aside um, so this is of course partly spending bonanza coming up exactly <laughs> this news. is the hope but, but you think this is good domestic news for if I'm Stockman department store somebody or or it's 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 probably better news uh, if I'm in Copenhagen or 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 in Greece uh, where the Finns might be heading. Well, that's the hope. So uh, economists hope that now that you can really travel abroad, that uh, Finns would spend this money domestically, um, and it's coupled with uh, easing of restrictions. So the government of Sanna Marin, there's a draft plan that has been leaked um, to the press, um, and they're hoping that by the end of the summer the country would be almost fully open and they're 
few milestones, just alluding to a couple. So primary schools opening this month, high schools next month, uh, month, and, and, and restaurants and bars by June should be almost fully open. Uh, travel within EU should be allowed already in May for work reasons and outside the EU later in July. So they're hoping that come late summer, the spending boom will be there. But we will see. It all depends on vaccinations and also possible new mutations, right? Always. Uh, so then, uh, just very quickly, you have a, a film story about uh, some some big box office monsters. Uh, I mean, the classics that keep coming back, King Kong and Godzilla. Yes, 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 exactly. So everyone is... Uh, so we can talk about box office again. So because the US, the US and New Zealand, China is uh, reopening cinemas. It's going to be mid-May, finger crossed for France, for example. Uh, so basically, we were hoping for Tenet to save uh, the worldwide box office. It didn't happen, didn't work, but there is one film that is giving uh, the whole industry uh, a big, uh, a bit, uh, a big uh, red, uh, a big actually green light. So it's uh, Godzilla versus Kong. So actually, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's, we are after a few days, few weeks of release, it's uh, more than 200 million box office worldwide. So looks like the audience wants something that is very uh, uplifting and get them out of the world right now and a very, very anxious pandemic uh, um, atmosphere. So actually, it's that film. Even Elon Musk tweeted about it, saying it's an oh, wow. amazing film. So, <laughs> oh, well, I so mean, a big then, ape, I'm, I'm booking my tickets. Big <laughs> ape, giant lizard. This is what the audience wants right now, to be back on cinemas. Any news on the Bond release? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Isn't it, it's back to. Is it still November? It's still end of the year, I think. No. Yeah, they're pushing it. it. They, they want it's going to be after September for sure. And just what what, what are you what are you looking for, forward to very quickly? If you say one film this summer though that uh, that you really think okay, cannot wait to book your tickets to get into cinema. James Bond actually mine. So <laughs> now it's the Wes Anderson yeah, one, Wes the Anderson. new one. Yeah. I'm yeah. dying for it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. set in France as well. Exactly. Appro appropriately yeah. enough, Gillian, anything from you? And, films. Uh, well, not for, well, films as well, but any, no. anything that uh, caught your attention in the papers. Look, look, there's an author. I have to put my glasses on, but anyway, <laughs> go on. Well, this I'll, is radio. I'll, I'll read I, it for news. you. Yeah. There's a full page on an author who wrote a book about the In the Footsteps of Federer. He mm -hmm. went on a oh. pilgrimage all around Switzerland. Uh, but I have to say, even Federer fan that I am, that would be a bit too stalkerish, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, Andrew, you, you do know that's probably why Gillian is here uh, for so long, right? Because <laughs> stalkerish, but you know, I'm I, I actually looking, there's, there's, there's sort of, there's mud on her sneakers. I, I think she's been stalking around gardens. <laughs> Well, here's a woman who, who's, who's nothing will stand in her way when Federer was on TV in the UK playing, <laughs> playing at Wimbledon. She would barge people out of the way. She was in front of that screen. She's like a she's like a teenage kind of uh, fan of a pop star when she sees him. So yes, I, I think I, I hope that he's I hope that he's beefed up his security in recent weeks. <laughs> um, and you, you touched on Wimbledon. We were talking to one of our board members, and that's all, you know another piece of good news that uh, it looks like Wimbledon you know is they're they're steaming ahead. Um, it won't be. I mean, I think it will be Wimbledon as we know it, and and they, they seem pretty confident. It sounds like as well in terms of the number of uh, of, of people that they're going to have, uh, of course, even in the stands, potentially up to fifty percent. Yes, and you know, we, I don't want to always give you these numbers, but we are at 60% of the adult population in the UK having one vaccination, already 13% too. They did a record number of vaccinations in the past two days. So despite all the recent talk of shortages, they seem to have found some in the cupboard. So they've been do, doing like 500,000 vaccinations a day. So the feeling is that it's this, this, this unfolding is going to actually happen re reasonably quickly. And by June, that the country should, in theory, be back to normal. So then Very all these sporting events and coming together will be an extraordinary moment.
Very good. Andrew Tucker, I have to leave it there. Céline Léger, Emily So, Gillian Debias, uh, Emma Nelson as well, also Aleph Ben and Guy Delaunay. Thank you very much. That's all for today's show. Big thanks to Desiree Bendley and also Nora Hall back in London. I'm Tyler Brulé Monocle on Sunday. Returns next week at the very same time. Have a good Sunday. Goodbye.